Dr. Marnie Peterson. I am the Outreach Coordinator for the Antimicrobial Stewardship Project, which was launched last year by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. A component of this project are podcasts with global experts in the field of antimicrobial stewardship and antibiotic resistance. Today, I am speaking with two clinical pediatric infectious disease specialists, Dr. Amy Dasner and Dr. Jennifer Gerardo, about the management of pneumonia in the pediatric critical care unit and the role for antimicrobial stewardship in this setting. Recently, they published a manuscript on this topic in current pediatric reviews, and I would encourage our reviewers at a later time to review the manuscript for further information. A little bit of background about our two speakers today. Dr. Dasner practices currently as a clinical pharmacy specialist in pediatric infectious diseases at Carolina's healthcare system in Charlotte, North Carolina. She graduated with her doctor of pharmacy degree from Creighton University and went on to complete a postgraduate year, year one pharmacy residency at Atlantic Health System in Morristown, New Jersey, following followed by a postgraduate year two residency in pediatric infectious diseases at Connecticut Children's Medical Center in Hartford, Connecticut. Her clinical interests include mechanisms of gram-negative bacterial resistance and optimization of antimicrobial pharmacodynamics. Dr. Gerardo is an associate clinical professor of pharmacy practice and pediatrics at the University of Connecticut. She's also the co-director of the antimicrobial stewardship program at Connecticut Children's Medical Center and the director of the PGY2 Infectious Diseases Pharmacy Residency at UConn at Connecticut Children's. She graduated with her PharmD in 2002 from the University of Connecticut and also completed an American Society Hospital Pharmacist Specialty Residency in Pediatrics at Children's Hospital in Boston. She has published multiple articles on pediatric infectious diseases and is a leader in this field. She's currently a member of a working group that is putting together a position statement on antimicrobial stewardship for the pediatric pharmacy advocacy group. So we have a lot of expertise here on our podcast, and I look forward to our conversation. Dr. Dasner and Dr. Gerardo, thank you for joining me today to discuss this important topic. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. So first, I'll, I'll start with uh, Dr. Dasner, and we're just, just to take a step back and, and highlight the significance of pediatric pneumonia and some of the drivers that, are in, that indicate antimicrobial use in this infection. Sure. So we know that pediatric pneumonia is one of the most common causes of childhood infection that requires hospitalization, uh, particularly among our younger patients. But we unfortunately don't have well-defined diagnostic criteria for pediatric pneumonia. So antimicrobial use in these patients is really often driven by the clinical interpretation of what their illness severity is and the results of available diagnostic testing so we can best try to determine um, and treat the likely cause of infection. So, Dr. Gerardo, uh, would you like to speak a little bit about the tendency, because of the limitations in diagnostics historically, some of the tendency for misuse of antibiotics? In these right. So I agree. There is a tendency of misuse of antibiotics because we, first of all, have issues with confirming the diagnosis and then limitations in identifying what type of a pathogen is actually causing the pneumonia when we do have a diagnosis. Um, so similar to adult patients, you know, if we can get a blood culture that's positive, that's great. But that's what? 
less than 10% of the time we're actually going to get a blood culture in even these patients with severe pneumonia. So many of the times we are having to see if we can get a sputum culture. And in kids, that's not something that's really feasible to get a good sputum culture. So it's not even tried most of the time. So what we would look at instead is if the patient is so severe with their pneumonia that they're ventilated, then these patients we can at least get endotracheal cultures. But it, the problem with that then stems from the fact that now we're very uncertain if this is the actual identification of the pathogen causing the infection or is this some sort of colonization. So we get a pathogen, but we're not even sure if it's what we should be treating. So that's one problem. The other problem is many of these children end up having viral pneumonia. And we can identify that based on some of our molecular testing, which is great, RSV and flu are the most common ones, but then is that the only thing that's driving that? And we can um, talk about it in a little while if you'd like, a little bit more about um, how we would try and figure out if it's a sole infection or not, but that's often going to be a again, another uncertainty that we would use other parameters to really try and put pieces of the puzzle together to try and determine is this a single infection with a virus or is this a co-infection with a virus and a bacteria or what's going on with that. So from a stewardship perspective, we have to really try and put some of these things together to try and figure out what is the most likely thing causing this pneumonia and how severe is the patient and those together will help us determine if this patient should have therapy narrowed or if we should recommend broadening therapy or, or what so have you. So it, it does set it up for confusion, and I think whenever you have confusion, that's an area for antimicrobial stewardship to really try and have yet another expertise in the area to try and optimize therapy. So you feel this is really an area where stewardship and guidelines it necessitates the importance of having good diagnostic tools Correct. to help guide, guide your antimicrobial selection. Can you talk, both of you perhaps, um, in your clinical settings, what, what kind of diagnostic tools are you currently using that you feel are helpful to guide your antimicrobial selection and, and monitoring? Um, so I think just to reiterate again what Jen had said about the, the utility of the diagnostic tools is that we need to use them in combination. So it's not necessarily one specific tool um, that's going to lead us to the answer of how best to treat these patients, but sort of using them um, and applying them to the specific patient to give a better, you know, image of the overall clinical picture. Um, so obviously we use um, our radiological evidence with a chest X-ray to help differentiate, firstly, if the patient actually has pneumonia or, or if they're experiencing another respiratory process, such as ventilator-associated atelectasis. Um, and, and chest x-ray can give us some possible clues as to what the actual cause of the infection is. For example, kids that present with empyema or pleural effusion might be more likely to have a staph aureus pneumonia. Um, but it's not necessarily completely clear uh, in terms of identifying what the actual etiology of infection is. So then we use some of our other diagnostic capabilities, such as uh, microbiologic and molecular diagnostics, to help us try and identify either a viral or bacterial pathogen and, and further optimize our antimicrobial regimen from a stewardship perspective. And Jen had, you know, previously touched on some of the issues regarding our microbiologic diagnostics. But I, I also want to elaborate a little bit on the use of molecular diagnostics because this is really 
a rapidly evolving and exciting area that stewardship can get involved in. Um, so molecular diagnostics are a DNA-based detection method for both viral pathogens and bacterial pathogens, and they're more sensitive than our traditional microbiologic data. Uh, so patients who have had prior antibiotic exposure and subsequently don't have a positive culture result could still have a positive uh, PCR molecular diagnostic result, which is helpful to us. Um, and once we are able to yield these pathogen identifications, these also happen more quickly. So culture-based methods will take longer than these PCR-based methods, and this can help us really um, more promptly de-escalate or narrow appropriate antimicrobial therapy, especially if we identify a viral pathogen, um, we're able to either deter the use of unnecessary antibiotics by not starting antibiotics initially or, again, de-escalating to um, more narrow therapy. Can I ask a quick question with, you know, and I want to continue this conversation, but depending on, I know this depends on how the patient presents, but if there's a question around viral versus bacterial, do you actually wait to get back the, the uh, molecular-based test to, to determine that before you would start antimicrobials, or is, is there a tendency to start the empiric therapy, and then from there you either de-escalate or stop? So with, so that, um, go ahead, Jen, sorry. So with a severe pneumonia, which is what the, this article was about, we would start the antimicrobial therapy initially based on usually most of the hospitals, including ours, has a pathway on, on how we would start most of our patients with an astral empiric therapy. And then we would use whatever testing results we have to either de-escalate or to stop antimicrobial therapy. Um, I think some of the big things would be your PCR, your cultures, or even utilizing, that's when we would also tie in now either the procalcitonin or the CRP. And most of the data, at least in pediatric pneumonia, hasn't really shown that there's a significant difference between the two of them from a clinical perspective. And in peds, we are very familiar with utilizing the CRP. Um, we use it for many of our infection monitorings. Most hospitals have this as part of their routine um, in-house testing methods. Um, so if you have both available, you know, going based on whichever one's going to give you a quicker answer can help de-escalate quicker um, how, or stop therapy quicker. But if you only have the CRP in-house and like our procalcitonin it would be a send-out, most of the time we can easily rely on the CRP because the evidence, at least in pediatric pneumonia, doesn't show a clinical benefit of one over the other. Okay. So... So this is all happening in real time within the, your first 24 to 48 hours of diagnosis. Right. And you're adjusting therapy. Can we talk then shift a little bit towards um, your empiric therapy choices and, and, and some of the current guidance there is related to pediatric pneumonias? Sure. So um, empirically, really what we're going to try and target is is based on the severity of illness when the patient presents and whether their infection is a community-acquired infection or a nosocomial-acquired infection, so either a hospital-acquired hospital, um, pneumonia or a ventilator-associated pneumonia. Um, so there is some good guidance for uh, causes of bacterial community-acquired pneumonia in children, and we know from the data it looks like those most 
the most likely organisms are going to be Streptococcus pneumoniae or Staph aureus, or our severe bacterial community-acquired pneumonia. And the Infectious Diseases Society of America provides guidance for us in terms of empiric antibiotic choices for these patients. And the decision for empiric antibiotics is really driven based on the immunization status of the child and, again, the presence of uh, pneumonia complications. So children who are fully immunized and do not have an empyema on presentation, the guidelines recommend they can be treated with narrow-spectrum ampicillin, um, while those patients who are under-immunized or do present with an empyema should have broader antimicrobial therapy with a third-generation cephalosporin uh, to target potentially resistant strep pneumoniae and beta-lactamase-producing haemophilus influenza. Where we sometimes see conflict in the clinical decision-making is in whether or not to empirically cover methicillin-resistant staph aureus or MRSA for our uh, patients coming in with community-acquired pneumonia. And there's actually conflicting recommendations if you look at the guidelines as well. So the pediatric community-acquired pneumonia guidelines from IDSA would suggest covering MRSA empirically based on the overall clinical picture, incorporating chest X-ray findings, so again, your empyema or pleural effusion on chest X-ray, and then uh, whatever diagnostic testing results are available, whereas the MRSA guidelines from IDSA would recommend empiric MRSA coverage for any child who is requiring ICU-level care for severe CAP, which is, again, the focus um, of the patient population in our, in our paper, um, or patients who have an empyema or a necrotizing or cavitary uh, infiltrate on chest X-ray. So, again, in clinical practice, this is kind of where we see variability among providers, but um, we're usually deciding to cover MRSA for these patients who come in severely ill uh, and have radiographic evidence of complications. And this is uh, particularly important if we have a patient coming in with severe pneumonia who has a history of preceding or concurrently has influenza pneumonia because we know that is a risk for patients to develop secondary staph pneumonia after their influenza. Um, and then in terms of nosocomial pneumonias, um, so again, hospital-acquired or ventilator-associated pneumonia, the etiology of disease really isn't as well-defined for children as it is for a community-acquired patient. Um, there's a little more guidance in terms of what infectious organisms we're dealing with for ventilator-associated pneumonia, just because these patients are more likely to have reliable culture results since they're, we're able to do uh, invasive sampling through um, Bronx and tracheal cultures, et cetera. Um, and, but the data really suggests that for the first several days, so up to five days of intubation, the likely infectious organisms for pneumonia are going to be largely similar to what you would see in community-acquired pneumonia. So strep pneumonia, um, haemophilus influenza, and staph aureus. But as the duration of mechanical ventilation continues, we start to become more concerned with covering resistance staph aureus, so MRSA, um, and broadening our gram-negative coverage to include some of those nosocomial organisms such as Pseudomonas, Enterobacter species, and Acinetobacter as well. So when we think about those type of pathogens, we're now worried about more nosocomial pathogens. And so not only are we going to need to worry about empiric coverage for them, but the empiric coverage is going to vary depending on the hospitals. So we would then need to look specifically for that hospital's antibiogram and sometimes even the antibiogram of the unit. And if it's a chronic patient, what they've grown in the past as well. Um, so taking all of those things into 
consideration, these are the patients that we're going to have to start on much more broad-spectrum therapy. Almost all of these patients will require at least two antibiotics to cover for that MRSA um, and those nosocomally acquired gram-negatives. Um, and as long as the patient's improving, we can then incorporate, you know, to get back to those lab tests that we, uh, Amy talked about earlier, incorporate all of those things um, to narrow and then define the therapy regimen for that patient. What, what are some of your common broad-spectrum antimicrobials that you, you tend to utilize? So for MRSA, we often, um, unless the patient has a history of renal insufficiency, um, we often go to vancomycin first line for the coverage of MRSA. Um, and then for your gram negatives, it really depends on the specific institution. We like to try and stay away from Zosin just because of the recent data of the combination of the vancomycin and the Zosin increasing the nephrotoxicity risk, even in pediatrics. Um, so we often go to ceftazidine because that's how our antibiogram works here. Um, but it really depends. Some institutions, cefepime would be the other option to utilize. It really um, is going to depend. And some places, the resistance is such that they'd have to go to maripenem. So, you know, as we talk about therapy and then you're refining and defining the therapy and incorporating antimicrobial stewardship practices, one of those practices is optimizing the actual the selected drug therapy through the use of pharmacodynamic approaches. Um, so I'd like to just talk a little bit about of some of your, some of the considerations you take as far as uh, pharmacodynamics and how you apply those to your drug dosing therapy as, as it relates to antimicrobial stewardship. So the optimization of pharmacodynamics is really important not only for children, but also for adults. Um, but unfortunately, in pediatrics, we have less available data to guide our dosing recommendations than adults do. So our approach to optimizing treatment relies heavily on using what limited data we do have available in pediatrics and incorporating that into what we know about principles of pediatric pharmacokinetics based on the child's age, et cetera, um, and then, you know, extrapolating some of the key pharmacodynamic principles of optimizing therapy from adult data as well. So the actual approach to optimizing the antibiotic therapy is really going to depend, obviously, on what your pharmacodynamic target is for that specific antibiotic. But, for example, we know the efficacy of our beta-lactam antibiotics is dependent on the amount of time of free drug above the minimum inhibitory complex concentrations using for that organism. So. To optimize beta-lactam regimen, we will often either decrease the dosing interval, so give the beta-lactam more frequently, or extend the infusion time of the antibiotic to increase the amount of time that we have that free drug above the MIC. So I think one example of incorporating all of these principles together would be when we think about pneumococcus, right? So strep pneumo is the number one cause of community-acquired pneumonia in these patients. And luckily, since 2010, when we had the 13-valent pneumococcal vaccine approved and start to be administered, the rates of pneumococcal-related infections has decreased. And along with that, most importantly, from our perspective, is the likelihood of IV penicillin being non-susceptible to pneumococcus also decreased. 
So that's why, as you mentioned earlier, we utilize ampicillin as the first-line therapy for these patients. Um, although the non-susceptibility rates of IV penicillin have decreased, you know, everywhere that's reported it, depending on the lo geographic location, there has been variability in the changes to the PO or oral penicillin susceptibility, as well as things like levofloxacin, MICs within susceptibility ranges have been noted to be increasing since that time. So when we take these into account, we need to make sure that depending on our local antibiograms, that we're dosing these appropriately. So for example, if we have a patient with a pneumococcal pneumonia come in, get better on IV ampicillin, but then need to be transitioned to amoxicillin, if they're in an area that has a high percentage of non-susceptibility based on that oral penicillin breakpoint, those patients should be discharged on high-dose amoxicillin that's just TID, not the BID, to get that higher time above the MIC. And that would then result in a better likelihood of having a bactericidal concentration and then hopefully a better likelihood of a positive outcome. So taking into account those things is very helpful. Similarly with levofloxacin, a higher dose or BID dosing may be needed to really reach those higher MICs even within the susceptibility breakpoints for pediatrics because those children just clear the drug so quickly because the renal clearance is so quick. So utilizing those instances when we do have pharmacodynamic data specific to pediatrics is important. Along the same lines as there is limited information about some of the gram negatives with beta-lactams as well to optimize those time above the MICs with prolonged or continuous infusions, especially for, you know, pseudomonas, acinetobacter in those nosocomial pneumonias as well. So I think that's a huge role for the antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist to provide that data um, about how to optimize those drugs so that we really save what we have to really improve the outcomes in our patients. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Thank you, uh, Dr. Gerardo, for that. Yeah. And the examples are, are very poignant um, as to how to utilize the information that is there. And it's a good segue because I wanted to, I wanted to take the last few minutes we have here to talk about your antimicrobial stewardship teams. And when you form those teams, who who are uh, the the players, the actual members of your team? And um, as I think people are interested in that as they're trying to form their teams and have an impact, I'd like to ask you a few questions about that. How how are you monitoring your outcomes, and if you're finding any barriers? To, to to implementing some of your practices, so maybe Dr. Gasner, you could you could go first and and sure. Dr. Gerardo. Yeah, I think I think that's a great a great point to bring up and to discuss is how to develop an effective stewardship program. Um, you know, there is guidance from the IDSA on developing stewardship programs in, in you know both in, in several different settings. Um, but I think the key is to take a multidisciplinary approach. Um, and obviously part of that is having a pharmacist leader and a physician leadership, uh, as well as incorporating people from microbiology, um, our colleagues in infection prevention, 
And one thing that we've done here at Carolina's healthcare system as we've started our pediatric stewardship program very recently is to incorporate buy-in from liaisons or people from the different specialties throughout the hospital who have an interest in antimicrobial stewardship and using them as a point person to communicate um, what is going on from a stewardship perspective with members of other care teams. So representatives from nephrology and from intensive care and from cardiology, et cetera, which I think is uh, really essential to not only incorporating your colleagues into what your plans are for antimicrobial stewardship, but also for troubleshooting uh, what might be key issues within other specialties and what areas of improvement they see for their own antimicrobial use as well. So some important facts that, that Amy mentioned that I definitely agree is obviously you do need to have um, the co-leadership and then uh, input from micro-infection prevention and having the different specialties, especially those who utilize a lot of antimicrobials involved. Um, I think one of the areas that she was alluding to that I think is essential is creation of the relationships, of really making sure that the co-directors of the stewardship program have strong relationships in the institution because those relationships are how you're going to be able to have discussions about patients. And I think it's, you can do your reviews of your um, recently uh, ordered medications, antimicrobials, and you can do your culture reviews. But when you go to talk to the individuals, it's so important to have those relationships and to be able to have discussions. So it's not about policing. I saw this on, on Twitter a few weeks ago, and I, I loved it. It's you're protecting the antibiotics. You're not restricting them, you're protecting them. You want to use the right antibiotics. And sometimes that's broadening therapy, sometimes that's narrowing therapy or limiting therapy, but it's really working together to do what's best for the patient to make it so that they get the narrowest spectrum agents for the right duration. In doing that, we're going to save those antibiotics for when they're really needed. And, and so I think that it's the daily discussions. It's those relationship buildings that are really helping to make these stewardships most effective. Um, I also think something that we did here that really helped out, again, taking those subspecialties that utilize it, um, in addition to quality, is we've created a lot of pathways. So it, it encourages people to do the right thing most of the time. And when it's off of the pathway, those are the more complicated patients, and that's often when we'll get ID consults involved. And sometimes we're the people recommending the consults because of them asking questions about some of those broader spectrum protected antibiotics. So I think that that's important. And I think the areas that we're having the challenges with is reviewing um, outcomes is really getting, um, we, we do it, but we haven't unfortunately done it as frequently as we would have liked, and now we're really putting formal processes in place um, to do that on a more routine basis. At least that's the biggest area we're having an issue with, but we've also had our program for a while, so I don't know if, if other places, Amy, you can let me know how your newer program is um, about how, what challenges you guys are having. Um, so we we still, one of the challenges that we have um, from our stewardship perspective is that we are incorporated into a larger health system, 
So when we started our pediatric antimicrobial stewardship program this summer, we utilized the framework that had been in place for several years from the adult side, but again, tailoring some of our um, alerts in terms of what antimicrobials we're looking at um, and what culture results we're getting based on what our pediatric needs are. And I think, you know, moving forward as more and more pediatric uh, practitioners look to implement stewardship at their own institutions, this is a very uh, real issue because not all places that care for children are freestanding children's hospitals. So I think that's been uh, something that's been a challenge for us is incorporating our pediatric needs into a larger framework. This is very insightful. I think our listeners will really appreciate your clinical experience, both in the topic of your review article, management of pneumonia, in the pediatric critical care setting, in the antimicrobial stewardship approaches that you're taking, but also these insights into just your antimicrobial stewardship teams and how operationally you're uh, implementing those. So I think that's very valuable. Uh, so with that, I'd like to end our podcast and thank Dr. Dasner and Dr. Gerardo for their time today for this very interesting discussion. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Terrific. I want to also uh, let our listeners know that this podcast, along with our other previous podcasts and webinars, are available at our SIDRAP uh, website, our Antimicrobial Stewardship Project website, at www.cidrap.umn.edu forward slash ASP, and that's under the Online Resources tab. And I'd also like to to also encourage our listeners to um, – Take a read through Dr. Jasner's and Dr. Gerardo's manuscript, the review that's in Current Pediatric Reviews 2017, Volume 13, Number 1. So it's a terrific review of this area. So thank you very much.